Chapter Nineteen of *The Hawk of Egypt* by Joan Conquest, read for LibriVox.org into the public domain. Chapter Nineteen, but still his tongue ran on, the less of weight it bore, with greater ease. Butler, Lady Thistleton's daughters were exhaustively energetic. It belied their colouring, which was done, and which, though of the same family, is distinct from Mousy. It has infinitely more vim and a vast endurance and a great patience. Also is it sullen and boring, but reliable. Ellen, the elder, had been engaged to a younger son of the Inverness of Inverness. His colouring, except of course for the eyes, which were of a snapping blue, reminded one of a tomato salad dressed with chilies and smothered in mustard sauce. His temper corresponded. They had fought over everything until they had smashed their engagement. Bernice was engaged to a parson in Edinburgh, one of the Smythe Smythes of London. She made a doormat of herself, loving the Herculean minister, and though longing to stay at home and get married, had, at her lover's earnest request, consented to accompany her mother and sister to Egypt instead. To his fervent mind the loss of a few months of married life would be compensated for by the biblical discourses upon the land of Moses with which, later on, as his wife, she would be able to enliven mother's meetings. They admired Damaris a lot though her independence and colouring shocked them not a little. In the seclusion of the double bedroom, as they brushed or twisted their lanky locks in hinds, they whispered about her love affair, which had presumably gone agly, and thrilled with the distinct feeling of wrong-doing over the gossip anent the mythical shake. If they had asked Damaris about the myth, she would have told them everything quite simply and truthfully. This would have cleared up the mist, but spoilt the feeling of wrong-doing. Lady Thistleton was large and recumbent, and adverse to sight-seeing, but after a heart-to-heart -heart talk with her daughters, had seen to it that Damaris had no time for moping. Damaris went here, there, and everywhere, played tennis, paid duty calls, and, as you must when somebody extends her wing-feathers as shelter, acted in charades, attended concerts, and was thoroughly miserable. Jane Coop was miserable, too so was the bulldog, and, through a certain unconfessed and indefinable vigilance, they both felt called upon to exercise in behalf of their beloved mistress, were distinctly nervy. "'Drat the men!' had said the maid, giving pithy verbal expression to the ragged state of her nerves, as she cut the stalks of the beautiful flowers which came daily without name or message. The dog's method of expressing himself was somewhat more violent, it consisted of the sudden seizure between his great teeth of the posterior portion of the nether garments of low-caste males, white or coloured. You could almost tell the status of the male bipeds by casting a discreet eye upon their raiment, and as there was not a muzzle in Egypt big enough to fit the dog, it had ended in him being led or chained in polite society. Damaris's table was next to that of the Thistletons, who with a vague memory may be of their duty towards their neighbour, as instilled on Sundays into their rebellious infantile heads, chatted brightly to right and to left of them at meals. Full of the milk of human kindness, they allowed it to overflow into their writhing neighbours' jugs. They broke through the glacial atmosphere which surrounds the Britisher's breakfast-table, newspaper propped against jam-pot was no barrier, their gladsome invitations or suggestions, damned for the moment, would rise at last level with the paper's edge, to trickle down the other side and mingle with the eggs and bacon, porridge, kidneys, or whatever trifle the plate may contain. They read out scraps of news from the morning paper, 
they read out bits of home news from their stacks of correspondence, written for the most part on eight pages and in the sprawling, uncontrolled script of the woman who has nothing but trivialities with which to fill her day. Their blood was blue, their upbringing beyond suspicion, they simply erred through a too generous supply of the above-mentioned philanthropic fluid. They had come home dead beat the night before, but were first down to breakfast, as happy as could be at the thought of the strenuous day before them, and were ostentatiously comparing their books of notes, or jottings, when Damaris came in. They went everywhere with notebooks in their hands, and made entries at the most inconvenient moments during their journey. To you or me they would have seemed but jottings, but Bernice could have read you a blank verse love poem in the thick markings of her fountain pen, and Ellen a de profundus from the hieroglyphics and inscriptions copied by her scratchy stilo, and under which she essayed to bury the memory of the tomato-hued Inverness. Damaris slid into her seat with an inward prayer that she might be allowed time to read her mail, which consisted of a fat letter from her godmother and a bulky one from home. Perhaps Moraine will be back soon, she thought, opening the other letter first, as is a way with us perverse humans. Enclosed was an atrociously written letter to her mother, from her plain-as-a-pikestaff brother, written from Harrow. "'It's awfully jolly,' wrote the enthusiastic youngster, being in Ben Kellum's house. They still talk about his last house-match against Bumbles. Don't you remember I'd just got over mumps and we went down for it? Brambles had six to win and ten minutes to do it in, when Howard was bold, and Cardin, their captain, went in and drove right over the path. He won the match by one, don't you remember? And then Kellum caught him magnificently in the slips, just as time was up. Damaris looked at a bunch of jasmine lying beside her plate, and sighed as she opened her godmother's letter, then sighed again more profoundly. The Duchess had arrived at Cargog without mishap. She described the journey, gradually ascending through the desert, then down through the narrow valley of rocks, the wastes of rock and gravel, the beautiful valley, the great plain to Maharik Kargag with its date-palms, its filthy lanes, its mosques, with the limestone hills almost surrounding it. "'And we can't get any further, my dear. A report has come of the appearance near here of a notorious robber-gang, which has infested the desert farther south for years.' I don't believe it myself. Hobson is furious, as the hotel we are in is not totally devoid of—shall I call them mosquitoes? But the authorities refuse to allow us to proceed. I have sent a runner through to the friend I was going to see. Damaris touched the jasmine at her side, and sighed. I will tell you the whole history when I return. So sad, my child, so very tragic. She may come to see me, as the authorities have no power over her. She is staying at her eldest son's house until his return. I will let you know my movements as soon as I can. Enjoy yourself. Deco is very quiet. He is either apprehensive or going to molt. Damaris smiled spasmodically when, as she put the letter down under the jasmine, her neighbors let off a broadside. The head dragoman wanted to get a party up for Deir al-Bahari on the morrow. He had twenty pairs of donkeys, all of which were so accustomed, it seemed, to going about in a bunch, that they refused to move a step if one pair was missing. Nineteen pairs had been filled from the different hotels. One pair was still minus riders. Would Damaris make a couple with Mr. Lumlow? Mr. Lumlow, who was of the raw age of nineteen and who worshipped in secret at the girl's shrine, blushed divinely salmon-pink and coughed. Damaris shook her head. 
She longed to see the temple, as she longed to go to Denderah, but not in a crowd. Also she longed to confide all her secrets, of which her visit to the temple of Amnon was not one of the least, to her godmother. She was just the slightest bit scared, and, being very young, felt incapable of prescribing for her burnt finger-tips. She had only to keep away from the fire, but, as I have already said, she was very young. Do, Damaris, we are taking our lunch on donkeys as well. But why not let the empty pair go without riders, or let Mr. Lumlow go on one, and let the other trot by its side without any one? I am sure it would love a holiday. No, these twenty pairs of donkeys belong to an asinine trades union. The twenty pairs went together or not at all. They went up the steep hill with a human being on their backs or not at all. If one solitary moke out of forty trades unionists should be asked to climb a hill with nothing on its back, it would not move one step. No, not if the most luscious carrot feast awaited it at the top. And if it refused to budge, thirty-nine others would support it by also refusing to budge. Yes, even if they held up the whole of tourist season for eternity, and never again tasted luscious carrot in all the years allotted to the asinine race. What is the good customs, if you don't stick to them? The donkey's parents had always climbed that hill heavily laden, and what was good enough for them was also good enough for their descendants. "'I think it's horrid of you, Damaris. Besides, what are you going to do all by yourself?' said Ellen, opening a letter, bits of which she proceeded to read out. "'Here's a letter from Sybil Sidmouth. She and Mr. Kellum are having a very poor time sitting about in the rocks and tombs all day and half the night.' "'How romantic!' sighed Berenice, all alone with nature in an Egyptian desert. It reminds me of Omar's jug and loafers. How does it go? She flipped through her notebook. Ah, here it is. And she proceeded to read, with appropriate punctuation, with her teaspoon on the edge of her saucer. A book of verses underneath the bough, a jug of wine, a loaf of bread, and thou, beside me, singing in the wilderness, oh, wilderness, where paradise and now. She looked up, suddenly, surprised and indignant, at Ellen, who had kicked her violently under the table. Then she tried to cover up her confusion at her unfortunate faux pas. "'Mrs. Sidmouth, of course, is far from well,' she continued. But Ellen broke in, in her high staccato and appalling French. "'Revenant à nos moutons, or at least our donkeys.' She looked at Damaris, who, with overbright eyes, laughed wholeheartedly at the feeble joke. "'Do change your mind, Damaris. The guide is Yusuf, the very best, you know. Besides, we might see the lion.' "'All right,' said Damaris, tucking the jasmine into the belt of her white dress, which she had never done before. "'I'll come. Twenty pairs of donkeys climbing up a hill will be an awfully funny sight. Don't you think so, Mr. Lumlow?' She smiled across at Mr. Lumlow, who was thereupon transported to the portals of the seventh heaven, with a piece of toast and marmalade in his right hand. End of chapter 19 Read by Sibella Denton For more information, please visit LibriVox.org